As we delve into your word, O oh God, and today we take a more intense look at our enemy, your enemy, Satan himself, and his, uh, just his final undoing, we ask that you would guard our hearts. We ask, God, that you would protect us. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would just powerfully create a hedge of protection around us today as we examine the enemy. Um, for those that, where it's easy to become obsessed with him, God, may that not be true of any of us but rather may we always be obsessed with you. And so we ask today that you would just powerfully protect us in these moments. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're in a five-week spiritual warfare series. This is the second week. And as we continue in this series, I think it's important that we note that we're gonna spend some time today talking about the enemy. Who, who is Satan? Who is this enemy? And what does he do? So that we have an understanding of of how we can combat him. I'll get into the combating of him the final week. I'm gonna look at Ephesians 6 in the full armor of God on the final Sunday. But it's just important to know that we need to understand who the enemy is. Now, in circles that you can travel in, there are circles you can go and be a part of where people blame Satan for everything. They just see that he's in everything, doing everything, about everything, and that is not true. It is simply not true. Sometimes it is the world, sometimes it is the flesh. It's not always the enemy. I'll look at a passage about that in a minute. And yet on the other side, I, I grew up in an environment in a really good church where we didn't blame him for anything. We, we somehow just didn't think Satan was at work. I mean, we would never have said he wasn't at work because we knew he was at work, but we wouldn't have blamed him for anything. And somewhere in there, there's a balance. There's a blend of who the enemy actually is and how he actually works. So in Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9, and I email these sermon notes out every Friday. So if you don't get them and you want to get them, uh, they're in the notice. Just ask the office for the sermon notes. Um, they're just verses today. But who is Satan? There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his, his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. That's, that is the enemy, the dragon. And they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to earth and his angels with him. And when did this happen? Well, before the fall. So before Genesis 3. When God created the angelic realm, did he do it the same time he created everything? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Were the angels around for millions of years before humanity was created? Maybe. Did Satan fall between the creation of the world and Genesis 3? Possibly. We simply don't know. We just don't know when this happened. But at some point in heaven, there's a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And God hurls him down. And John here in Revelation 12, wants to make sure that you know who he's talking about, which is why he says, this is the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan. He says, just so you're not confused. It's the great dragon I'm talking about, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. All four terms here used interchangeably. I'm going to turn you to Ezekiel 28. There's a couple of passages, one in Ezekiel, one in Isaiah. I don't turn to the one in Isaiah as often, but this passage in Ezekiel is talking about the king of Tyre. But as you refer to this, you think about this, you've got to ask yourself, who is behind the king of Tyre? 
because as the explanation in Ezekiel 28 is about this king, there's also some things that are not human that are described here. Note verse 13 of Ezekiel 28. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, tapo, uh, uh, tapos, emerald, crystallite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, pearl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Did you catch that twice in this passage, God says he created him? He created him. Lucifer, angel of light, God created him. Erwin Lutzer says this. This is very helpful. He's written a book on Satan that R.C. Sproul called the best book he'd ever read on Satan. It's an excellent book. Um, Erwin Lutzer says this. What may not be widely known is that Lucifer was already defeated the moment he sinned. He was defeated strategically since as one of God's creatures, he would be forced to depend on God for his continued existence. Any power he would exercise would always be subject to God's will and decree. Thus, moment by moment, he would suffer the humiliation of knowing that he could never be the ultimate cause of his existence and power. Satan knows that. Satan knows he's not God. Satan knows he didn't create all things. He didn't create himself. Satan knows he doesn't self-exist. He's not the great I am. Satan knows that his very existence is subject to God's will and decree. He's a creature. God can do with his creatures as he determines. Anytime God wants to snuff Satan out, he could do so. God's that powerful. So Satan knows that he can't exercise any power unless God allows him to. And Satan knows he can't, he wasn't able to create himself. He didn't self-exist. Satan didn't always exist. God created Lucifer, an angel. That angel chose to rebel against God. So what does that mean? He's limited in what he can do. Three terms we use to talk about, about, about God are omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, the ability to be everywhere at once, and omnipotence, all-powerful. Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He's not. He can take some great guesses at the future, but he doesn't know the future. Only God knows the future. Satan does not know the future. Satan is not all-present. He can be in Rome or he can be in Hamilton, but he can't be in both at the same time. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a legion of demons at his disposal. I'll talk about that next week when we look at demonization and look at the demonic. But Satan can only be in one place at one time. He is limited to that place. That's it. So if Satan right now is attacking someone in Brazil, he's not attacking us here. That doesn't mean his, his demons aren't, the demons that fell. It says a third, I'll get to this actually, but a third of the demonic realm or the angelic realm, a third of the angelic realm fell with him. It's a lot of them. But it does mean that he's limited in that. He's not all powerful. He's a created being. And he can't cause anything to be created like God. Only God can speak things into existence. Satan has limitations. 
I don't believe Satan can read your thoughts. I believe Satan might be able to control your thoughts, but I don't think Satan can read your thoughts. So then people will say, well, how does he know? How does he tempt us? Well, I'll get to that in a few minutes. He's a great tempter. Right? How does he know what I struggle with? It's actually not hard. A lot of people know what you struggle with. If you're married, your spouse knows what you struggle with, and she can't read your thoughts, or he can't read your thoughts, although some days you might think they can. He's been given limited authority. I want you to hear what the Bible says about him. Jesus says this. Uh, now the time for judgment on, now, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So he's called the prince of the world. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel um, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he's called the God of this age, small g, God. And Ephesians 2, this is where you see uh, Satan, the flesh, and, uh, and the world, right? For as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's mean unable to be responsive in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. So note that. Sometimes you follow the ways of the world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's attributed to Satan. A few times in scripture, he's called the ruler of the world. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. See the third one there. Right? So you've got the world, Satan, flesh. And, it's, and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's a strong statement. Because we're dead in our transgressions and sins, we are by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath against us. Now, let me explain what God does there. Because we're dead, and it's God who grants us to respond in him. Some people say, does God look over humanity? John Newfeld, I heard say this. It was a beautiful illustration. Does God look over humanity and see the sea of people and just choose some? He said, it's more like this. God looks over humanity and we are all in the grave. We're all dead. He's looking over a graveyard and God simply calls some up. He simply grants life to a group. That's what God does. And now we battle the world, our sinful nature, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But did you catch this? He's called the prince of the world in John 12. And three times in the Gospel of John, he's called the prince of the world. He's called the God of the age in 2 Corinthians 4. And he's called uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air here in Ephesians 2. So he's given limited authority. So how do you know when it's your own sinful nature, when it's Satan himself or the demonic, or when it's the world, when it's the fact that the world is, is pressing against you to sin. How do you know? Well, you discern. You pray. You ask God for discernment. It's why we need to get to know the Holy Spirit who is in us. He's in us. You know that, right? God's Spirit is in you if you're a believer. So you need to ask Him, Spirit of God, who's pressing against me right now? You need to ask for that type of discernment. It's why the spiritual gifts are so important. When we look through the book of Acts over the last year, we talked about spiritual gifts. It's why gifts of discernment, understanding as, as, as we do, how the Lord would uh, allow us to be used in each other's lives. Because the gift of discernment is given for you to help others discern. Gifts are always not for your benefit, but for others. You can ask God to help you discern, but then if someone's going to use the gift of discernment, gifts are always for the benefit of others. So as people in our church have those gifts, 
You want people to be able to speak into your life and say, I actually think the enemy's attacking you. I actually think it's the world. I remember years ago, we had a young man who believed he was demonized. We brought John Mahaffey in to help us think through what this looked like to understand whether he was or not because it was a very complicated case and Paul and I needed some assistance. And so John Mahaffey came down. We prayed for him. We prayed with him. We went through the house. We did this a couple of times. Uh, and, and at the end, John was like, I, I'm not sensing there's, and I wasn't either, anything demonic here. I think this is a battle of the flesh and the world. I think that's what this is. Well, the young guy didn't really like it, to be honest. He wanted it to be demonic. He wanted to be able to put the blame somewhere else. He didn't want it to be him and his own battle against the world. He wanted to be able to say, this is something else. But, but he couldn't. And we were convinced that that was the case, that this wasn't something that was demonic. This was rather something that was fleshly or from the world. But Satan, God of this age, prince of this world, right? And, and did you know what it said? And, and then ruler of the kingdom, he has a domain, world, age, kingdom. Did you catch that? And he has authority. It's limited, but he has authority. So what's his strategy? Let me give you three things. Number one, he's the tempter. Satan comes to tempt. He loves to tempt people. This is back to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A couple of years ago, I went through Genesis, and you can go online and find this sermon, and I did an extended sermon on Genesis 3. But note 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, Paul says, I sent to find out about your faith, about the Thessalonians. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. So he's the tempter. How does he do it? Well, he cast out. Did God really say? Did God really say? That's one of the ways he cast out. In fact, Friday night, I saw this in front of me vividly. When Jojo Ruba was talking about marriages, and he looked out at the 80 of the group that was here and said, you know, he, you know, he said, I wouldn't go to a wedding of a believer and a non-believer. I just wouldn't do that. If a believer... You know, male was marrying a non-believer female, or a believer female was marrying a, a non-believer male. Did I do that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, that he said, I, I wouldn't go, because the Bible forbids a Christian from marrying a non-Christian. And there was like a, almost a gasp in the room. Like People were like, I've never heard this before. I'm like, what? It's all over the Bible. Christians not dating non-Christians, what, what this looks like. And so, of course, you wouldn't go to the wedding. Right? This, is, this is something that's outside of what God wants. But what happens is, Satan constantly says, did God really say? Did God really say? He wants to cast out, God, did God really say a Christian can't date a non-Christian? Really? No, come on. You love her. She's hot. Right? Satan wants to use all kinds of things to help you think that it's okay. That, that it's all right. He's going to always cast doubt. 
Did, did God really say that all the other religions in the world are demonic? We'll talk about that next week. I'll show you the passage. Right? Where it's actually, they're actually called demons. Did God really say this? And all of a sudden, we move to a place where we discount what God said. It happens all the time. All kinds of people all over the place are doubting God's word, are doubting what he said. People are calling it fluid. The canon's no longer closed. They're acting as if the Bible is not God's word to us. We get to actually pick the words we like and pick the words we don't like. We get to determine what we think God said and what God didn't say from what this book said. We can kind of, you know, go back and forth on it. I think it was Mark Twain who, who ripped out the pages of Scripture that he didn't like, and he said, I was sad. At one point I realized in my life there wasn't much left. We may not rip them out. We just don't read them. Or we want to create some way of explaining them away. But he likes to cast doubt. Did you, did you hear the second time? First, first did God really say Secondly, you won't die. You're not going to die, Eve. Come on. You think God's really like that? You've been walking around with him in the garden. right? You think, you think God's really going to do that to you? you? What are you? Eve, buddy, come on. Now, you got to remember, likely Satan has shown up a number of times and had conversation with them. It's not like this is the first time the snake has talked to them. And they're like, oh, right? Like this has probably been happening a fair bit. We don't know how long they're in the garden for. The Bible doesn't tell us. Like, this is likely not day eight, right? Is this two weeks, three, three weeks, a year, 10 years? Is it a million years? I have no clue. I'd like to think they're actually in the garden for a bit of time, that they weren't just there momentarily. I'll ask Adam when I see him one day, how long were you in the garden for before you got kicked out? I, I have no clue. The Bible doesn't say but I'm assuming this isn't day eight. I'm assuming that they're used to some type of conversation with the serpent, knowing that he is the one who is coming to tempt them. And he cast out, did God really say, Eve, you're not going to die. Come on, girl. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be just like God. Eve, does that not sound good? Just like God. That's what he does. He tempts. You can be just like God. You're not going to die. Did God really say? Secondly, he's the deceiver. He's the deceiver. 2 Corinthians 11. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. This is our day right here. This is our day right here. Note the three things. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. A different Jesus. I mean, how many believers can we have conversations with now who talk about a Jesus who doesn't believe in wrath, a Jesus is only love, a Jesus who doesn't talk about hell, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He talks about hell all the time. He talks about damnation constantly. I mean, in fact, the, the three subjects he talks most about are salvation, Money and damnation. Salvation, money, and damnation. Not necessarily in that order. Salvation first, though. He talks more about those three things than anything else. So then you sit down with someone as you're dialoguing about this, and they don't want to think that Jesus is the way the Bible depicts him. And so as you sit down with them in conversation, you're talking to them, and you come across some of these passages. I mean, Luke, 
I'm going to quote a couple from Matthew, David. Luke is filled, filled with all kinds of depiction of hell. And then people are like, well, you know, I like some of what Jesus said. So they've moved from they like what Jesus said to some of what Jesus said. And then the question, of course, is what, what, what's the sum? What things do you like? How do you choose? How do you determine? How do you decide? And it's all based on what? What you feel like in the moment. What you think about in that time. Instead of objectively understanding what God has said to us. So he wants to deceive us. One, to believe there's a different Jesus. Oh, come on, all roads lead to heaven. There's no hell. Oh, come on. He's a loving God, not, not holy. Oh, he didn't have to die for our sin. I mean, this is a huge theory out there today. The wrath of the Father wasn't poured out on him on the cross. That's not what the passage in Isaiah says. That, that's not what it means. It's not what 1 Corinthians is talking about, and of course it is. And what do they say? Well, if the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son like that, like that's like, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, child abuse. That's what it's referred to as. But it's not. This is God the Son taking the wrath of God the Father, co-equally, co-eternally God, on a cross. It's not abuse of any kind. It's God the Son willingly accepting it and becoming our sin. But, but if you're struggling with this today as I'm talking about this, you've maybe accepted a different Jesus, which Paul is saying isn't Jesus at all. And so you don't know him. You actually don't know him today. You don't know who he is. If you don't believe he took your sin upon himself, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so you're not saved, Paul's saying, the apostle. You don't actually know him. That's a pretty scary place to be right now, isn't it? You think he's just loving and not a God of wrath. If you think he's just the God who gives you whatever you want, whenever you want, instead of the God who gives you what you need. Because he's all wise. And he's God. But the second one here, a different spirit. A different spirit. Well, the spirit guided the authors of scripture. And so then all of a sudden, in the different spirit, you've got all the struggles of, well, you know, the Bible's fluid. The canon's not closed. People talk all kinds of weird nonsense about the Bible. And you're accepting a different spirit. Right? No small S spirit instead of capital S spirit. Because what does the spirit of God do? Convicts us of our sin. You can't come to Christ without conviction of sin. Causes us to be righteous. John 16, right? I've looked at these passages a number of times over the years. We've looked at them extensively through Acts. Spirit of God causes us to grow in our righteousness, our sanctification. And lastly, I'll look at the one today in a few moments. He reminds us that Satan is the condemned one and not us. So a different Jesus, a different spirit, and finally a different, a different gospel. Again, this could be the universalistic gospel. All roads lead to heaven. This could be that there is no hell gospel. This could be you can live however you want gospel. And, you know, I mean, I, I, this broke my heart, but I was being with a group of men recently and, and young men, and I was just talking to them. The one guy said in the room, he said, we're young. We're not going to die soon. He said, we'll clean this all up before we die. I'm like, you don't know when you're going to die. You simply don't know. Not that that's a scare tactic, but you actually don't know when you're going to die. I'm going to drop Jojo Ruba off at the airport tomorrow and back, and I don't know if another car is going to hit me. I don't know if I'm going to make it back. I have no clue. I, how many funerals have I taken of people whose lives are cut right in the middle? 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, several, right? 28-year-old, 40-year-old, gone, heart attack, cancer, shot to death. 
car accident. It happens. And yet we will live with all kinds of false hope, some different gospel. We'll act as if we could know Christ without repentance. That it could happen without conviction of sin. So he's the tempter, Satan's the tempter, he's the deceiver. Says it to Eve, right? You won't die. Come on, Eve. And he's a liar. John 8, says, You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer, so he is a murderer from the beginning. Likely that's reference to Cain and Abel. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. So three things he lies about. Number one, he lies about God. He lies about God. He acts as if God didn't say what he said. He acts as if there's no consequences to what God said. He makes God out to be the one who's the killjoy. Come on, Eve. Bite the fruit. You'll be like God knowing good from evil. Well, there was some truth to it. It was mixed. Truth is almost always mixed with lies. There was some truth to it. Right? She was now going to know good from evil. And so in that one sense, she'd be like God, but she wasn't going to be like God in his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Wasn't going to be like God in his omniscience. Wasn't going to be like God in every aspect, just in one aspect. But not be like God the way he's... So he's going to lie about God. He's going to make you think that his way is better, it's more pleasurable, it's more fun. That's part of the number two, he lies about the benefits of sin. You won't die, you're going to be like him, Eve. Lies about the benefits of sin. Lies about the benefits of pleasure or wealth or success. Always. But the wages of sin is always death. Relationally, right? Us and God, us and each other. Emotionally, psychologically, and physically. The wages of sin is always death in every way. But Satan wants you to think that when you partake of sin, it actually gives you life. That it's actually life-giving and not life-taking. That it actually will be something that you'll enjoy, and you will for the moment. There will be enjoyment in that minute. But he wants you to be convinced that you just need to partake of more, you just need to have more, you just need to indulge more. And lastly, he lies about the work of Christ. When he comes, he will prove the world, this is John 16, to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And then the third part, about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Another time where John calls him the prince of the world. You see, Satan wants you to think that you are the one that's going to be judged and not him. That you are the one that is going to be condemned and not him. Satan wants to convince you that you are the one going down and not him. And so he, Jesus says, one of the reasons the Spirit of God is coming in you is so that he can remind you that Satan is condemned and not you. Satan's the one who's condemned. You are not condemned. In fact, Romans tells us there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So what is Satan's primary strategy? Well, well it's against God's people. Satan's primary strategy is against God's people. We're going to look at this verse twice for a minute here, two verses, 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be self-controlled. Be alert. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same type of suffering. So he says, be self-controlled about what you see, about what you do, about what you text, about how you behave, about how you interact with people, about, about, about what you Google. Be self-controlled and be alert. What's alert? Be on the lookout. A alert is be awake. Be awake to the things that are happening. Th that's why earlier in 1 Peter, when it's talking about be of sober judgment, the idea of the term sober is, carries with it the ideas of self-control and alertness. When he's talking about sober judgment. There he's not saying, you know, he's not differentiating between drunk judgment and sober judgment. He's talking just about regular everyday living. Be sober in the way that you interact with others. Be self-controlled about the way the enemy is going to come at you. Notice what it says. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You ever seen a lion prowl? Like I've only ever seen it on like National Geographic or you know, TV shows where a lion is, is actually waiting for its prey to just kind of jump at it and kill it. That's what Satan's doing. You're his prey. And he's waiting to attack you so that he can what? Devour you. When he offers you the pleasures of sin and lies to you about what they will accomplish, it's because he wants to devour you. That's all. That's all he wants to do. He wants to devour you. And it will come with suffering. I'm going to skip the next slide, 2 Timothy 2, and flip to Revelation 2. Revelation 2 says this, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil uh, will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So he prowls around like a, a lion to devour you, and there will be suffering. And Revelation 2, again, as the devil comes to put you in prison to test you, this is specific to a group of them, but he will do similar to us. <clears throat> he says, you will suffer. You will suffer. Some of our suffering isn't because of the fallen world. Some of our suffering is directly linked to Satan. Some of our suffering is actually satanic. But here, I'm going to go to the end so that we can flip to some good news. Jesus has defeated Satan. Is that not great news? Listen to Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So since we have flesh and blood, it says Jesus became flesh and blood. That's why the incarnation is critical. I mean, why did Jesus have to come? Here is the answer. Because humanity sinned, humanity deserved to die. God's wrath had to be poured out on humanity. So if people say, couldn't there have been another way? The answer is no. There, there couldn't have been. Jesus is the only way for a reason. Humanity sinned, humanity deserved to die. Jesus shows up fully human, fully God to take our place. That's it. Jesus had to do it. There was no other way. It, there was no other possibility. This was all that could be done. 
So Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death. He took Satan's greatest weapon. I mentioned this last week. And he destroyed it. Is that not great news? The greatest weapon Satan has isn't just deception or temptation or lying. The greatest weapon he has is death itself. It's what we all fear, every human being. And he took the greatest weapon in his arsenal of weapons, and Christ destroyed it by being raised to life again. He destroyed death. That's why earlier in the passage, in Revelation 2, it can say, he who overcomes or she who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Is that not great news? Will not be hurt at all by the second death. 1 John 3, 8 says this about Jesus' defeat of Satan. The reason that God, the Son of God, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's what he did. So what do we do? I'll get to this in a few weeks. But from James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, so he will flee from you. Again, back to 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Stand firm, resist him, be self-controlled and alert. But we'll come to that more in a few weeks. So as I conclude today, now when I say that, I've got like about nine minutes to conclude, right? This is not like a one-minute conclusion. What happens to Satan finally? Look at, look at Revelation 20. So this is the Apostle John. 20 verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His final end is the lake of burning sulfur. But it's not just his final end. It's the final end for anyone outside of Christ. It's the final end for anyone outside of Christ. Listen, this is Matthew 13, Jesus' words. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it on the shore. Then they sat down, they collected the good fish in baskets, they threw the bad away. That is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into blazing furnace, uh, the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus' words. That's what he says will happen. In Matthew 10, Jesus again. Don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. Are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You who are worth more than many sparrows, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But if you disown me before others, I will... Uh, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Those are powerful words, aren't they? A lake of burning sulfur prepared for the enemy, Satan. But it's not just for him, it's for anyone who chooses to not repent and turn to Christ in salvation. It's for anyone, for friends, for family members that we know. It's why gospel witness, as I went through Acts, becomes so important as we share our faith with people around us. And then 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He will punish, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified, his holy people, uh, in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, this includes you, because you believed our testimony. 
So note the descriptions of hell. Burning sulfur, blazing furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how hell is described. Many more depictions of hell in Scripture, right? Fire, darkness. You could just read through the array of descriptions of hell in Scripture. Note, though, Matthew 10 is interesting. Do not be afraid of any person who could just kill your body and that's it. Do be afraid of the one who can destroy your body and soul. And then look at verse 31. So don't be afraid. What? Do not be afraid of people who can kill you, but rather be afraid of the one who can throw your soul into hell. Okay? Be afraid of the one who can throw you in hell. And then don't be afraid. What? So what's going on here? Well, as a non-Christian, we should be afraid of God. We should fear God. It's why the one insurrectionist on the cross, the criminal, says to the other insurrectionist, don't you fear God? We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man, he's done nothing wrong. He gets it. Man, don't you fear God? There should be something. I mean, one of the things I pray for non-believers is that they would fear God. That God's conviction would rest upon them so powerfully that they'd recognize that they are not God and he is. That's why he is the Lord. It's not just our Savior, though I'm thankful he is. He is the Lord. He is the Lord God Almighty. That is him. And so as a non-believer, you come to the point and place where you go, man, I should be afraid of him and not afraid of just people. But then Jesus says, don't be afraid because God looks after the sparrows. Because once you transition from being someone who doesn't know God to someone who does know God, you're welcomed into his family. He treats you the way his son deserves to be treated. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. It is incredibly powerful what God does in our lives. And he grants us that so that Jesus can say, and then you don't need to be afraid. We stand in awe of him. Of course, there's scripture passages that talk about the fear of the Lord, but that's a, a standing in awe of him. That's a, that's a marveling at who he is as the other. I mean, he's this being that is so other than us. So why is hell spoken of so strongly? Well, it's the last place you want to be. When you have God's holiness and justice somewhere without his grace, when you are still in the presence of God, but you face his holiness without grace, that will be like burning sulfur, blazing furnace, darkness with fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because when people reject Jesus and say, I don't want you, God says, well, you don't get me then. He gives them exactly what they want. You've heard me say this so many times, it's just not what they expect. And so they end up in a place where his holiness and justice is firmly set. But his grace and love and hope and peace isn't there. So why Paul says, we implore you, implore you to know Christ. Be his ambassadors and tell the world about him. Let people know. Or do what some do and create a different Jesus by trusting in a spirit that's not the spirit and changing the gospel to something you want rather than what it is. 
and then saying it's fine. One of my favorite moments in this is when people talk about how there had to be three Isaiahs. And the reason they'll say there had to be three Isaiahs is because as you read through the book of Isaiah, uh, and, it, and it talks about the Persian king, it actually names him in person like in Isaiah 44 and 45. It's a beautiful passage in a passage where God is talking about how he set everything in the past, only he knows the future. All the other gods are wood and straw and stubble. They do not exist. Who else knows the past? Who else can claim the future? And then he names the king who will bring, uh, the king of Persia, who will bring the people of God back from Persia into the promised land. And, and people say, well, he couldn't have known that. This is 100 years before the guy was born, so there must be three Isaiahs. I mean, I'm like, what? You're like, your higher literary criticism of Scripture is to say, oh, it couldn't be done this way because like, uh, he wasn't born for 100 years, and so we got to make something up so that you know, it fits with what we think. Rather than saying, here's a God who in that very passage is saying, I put the foundations of the universe in place. I know the future to its very end. Everyone else who claims they do are very gods that you made yourself. I alone and he. And then he names a man in the future who's going to come and rescue God's people and bring them back from exile. In the very passage of what he's trying to prove, they want to disprove it and show their idiocies. A false gospel. A false spirit. Not Jesus at all. But here's the good news, and I close. Justin, you guys can come up. And this really means close. Did you catch, did you catch what happens when you acknowledge Jesus before others? What's he going to do? He's going to acknowledge you before the Father. Is that not great news? When you stand before the Father in judgment, Jesus is going to say, no, my blood has covered her sin. My accomplished work has been enough. When you stand before him in judgment one day, he's going to say, I'm going to acknowledge you. I'm going to let the Father know that I know you and that my blood has been enough. He said, for those that believe in him, did you hear that in the passage of Thessalonians? That, that, that they will be punished, those that don't know him, from everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On that day, he comes to be glorified in his people. On that judgment day, he will be glorified in his people to be marveled at among all those who believe. It includes you. Is that not good news? It includes you because you believed the testimony to be true. That is the good news of the gospel. And what will we marvel at? You see, what we experience now is so unlike what we will experience then. What we know now is so unlike what we will know then. We will marvel at the fact that Christ's accomplished work is enough to to shield us from the holy justice of God. It will be marvelous. We will be in awe of his grace. On that day, I believe the reason there's tears in heaven and then God wipes away every tear is because we'll see our sin, we'll know our sin, and we'll know we deserve condemnation. And Jesus will cry out that we're his and there's no condemnation for anyone in Christ Jesus. And then we'll enter a place, someone like this one, where death has been vanquished, where sin can't enter in, where the enemy, Satan, is gone. I don't even know what that looks like. I, I can't even conceptualize it. But I'll marvel at him forever, won't I? Won't you? To enjoy him, to celebrate him, to know him, 
and to never be tempted and to never have the enemy knock at your door and to never worry about death and to not age, to not age. Amy and I, she's in her 40s, I'm in my 50s. We're five years apart. She likes to say I'm almost 60. I'm not almost 60. I've just turned 51. Um, I won't say how old she is. We're not supposed to do that. But we're five years apart. I'll leave it at that. And, um, and so we've just joked about our bodies falling apart. Like, what's it, what's it going to be like at 70 when at, at our ages, whatever they may be, 51 and something, five years less, at our ages, we, we're struggling with things. You know, we bump into something and we got a bruise forever. We, we, we don't even know what bruises are from anymore. What's this bruise? Why do I have a... To be in a place where you won't be experiencing the continual decay of your body, but enjoying him forever and marveling because everything here that we see will be undone. No sickness, no disease, no death, no Satan, no sin, no temptation. Acknowledged before the Father, glorifying him and marveling at who he is forever. Will you pray with me? We are thankful, Jesus, that you are greater than Satan. And we're thankful that as part of your purpose and plan, O oh God, you have chosen to allow him to be the God of the sage, the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And though his power be limited at times, God, they, it just feels forceful and it's hard. We look forward to the day, Jesus, when you return knowing that you have already defeated the enemy, but knowing in fullness we will see it accomplished. And God, we look forward to a day when you will acknowledge us before the Father because we have acknowledged you before others. We look forward to a day, Jesus, where you will be the one that we will marvel at forever and ever and ever as sin and Satan and death is vanquished from anything we will know or experience for all of eternity and we will just celebrate and enjoy life and hope and peace and joy and grace for all of eternity because we will enjoy you. So come, Lord Jesus, come. And until that day, help us to stand firm, be self-controlled, Resist the enemy and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with everyone around us who will hear. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.